Well, good morning. We're continuing a, a series today where we're looking at questions that uh, Siri can't answer. And so, over the next few minutes, I want to talk and address some important questions about Jesus. And I believe the way we answer these questions will have a huge, great impact on our life. Uh, question number one will be, was Jesus really the Son of God? Number two, why did Jesus have to die? And number three, did Jesus really come back to life? Is Jesus really the Son of God? Because he's not the first person to claim that he's the Son of God, and he wouldn't be the last. In fact, I heard a preacher talk one time about a woman named Jemima Wilkinson. She was born in 1752 in Rhode Island, and Jemima Wilkinson was able to convince about 200 people that she was the daughter of God, that she was their ticket to heaven, and if they would follow her, she would take them to the Father. So one of these days, she's leading these people, and she's walking through some woods, and she and her followers come to a lake. And she said that she was going to walk across this lake. She was going to walk on water the same way that Jesus did. But they had to believe that she was going to do it. And so she turned to her followers and she said, do you believe that I can walk on water? And they all said, yes, yes, we believe. You, you can do it. And she said, well, if you believe that I can already do it, then there's no need for me to actually do it. And she just walked around the side of the lake. Well, she lost a few followers that day. They were a little more skeptical and cynical after that. But what really destroyed her little movement was in 1820 when she died. Earlier she had told her followers, if I die, don't bury me. Just lay my body out because on the third day, I'm coming back from the dead. And so her followers didn't bury her. They just sat her out and they waited. And they waited. Nothing happened. And slowly, one by one, they sort of trickled away and that was the end of Jemima Wilkinson's claim to be the way, the truth, and the life. My guess is you've probably never heard of her before. She was proven to be a liar. So what's your take on Jesus? Is he just another Jemima Wilkinson, or is he the Son of God? C.S. Lewis says that as you look at Jesus, you really only have a few options of what you can do with him. You can either say he was a liar, he was a lunatic, he was a legend, or he was Lord. To say that he's not Lord is to say that he's one of the other three. So would you say that Jesus is a liar? Because as we've stated, he wouldn't be the first person to claim to be a son or daughter of God. D did he lie about this? Did, did he come up with this elaborate story and just stick with it all the way to his death? If you say that Jesus is a liar, then he couldn't be a good moral teacher. You can't be a good moral teacher and be a complete liar. So is Jesus a liar? Some would say that he is. Or maybe you would say that he's a lunatic. Because listen, if someone were walking around today saying that they were the son or daughter of God, we would probably check them into a mental health hospital we would at least make sure that they were heavily medicated. But would you die for someone that you thought was a lunatic? Because the people who were closest to Jesus believed that he was the son of God and they were willing to be killed before they backed down from that belief. 
just think about some of his disciples and closest followers. History tells us that Matthew died in Ethiopia, that he was killed by the sword. Mark died in Alexandria, Egypt, after being dragged through the streets by horses until he was dead. Luke was hung in Greece. Peter was crucified upside down on an X-shaped cross. James the Just was thrown from over 100 feet from the southeast pinnacle of the temple because he refused to deny his faith in Jesus. Amazingly enough, he survived, and then they beat him to death with clubs. James the Greater, son of Zebedee, was ultimately beheaded in Jerusalem. Andrew, like Peter, was crucified on an X-shaped cross in Greece. Thomas was stabbed to death with a spear in India while on a mission trip there. Jude, the brother of Jesus, was killed with arrows when he refused to deny the deity of Christ. Barnabas was stoned to death. Paul was tortured and ultimately beheaded in Rome. The people who knew him best were so convinced that he was not a liar and he was not a lunatic, but he really was the Lord. They were willing to die for that belief. Well, maybe Jesus was just a legend. This is incredible to me, but despite archaeological and secular histories recording the life of Jesus, there are still some people who claim that Jesus never lived, that he's just some uh, mythical, uh, made-up character. Now, to tell you the truth, this may be an option, but it's not a realistic option. The existence of Jesus is a matter of historical record. Secular encyclopedias list him as a bona fide first century historical personality. It calls him the founder of the Christian faith. I want you to listen to what Bart Ehrman, an agnostic New Testament scholar. So so here is is a man who, who studies the first century ancient world. He's not a Christian, but this is what he says about the historical Jesus. This is not even an issue for scholars of antiquity. The reason for thinking Jesus existed is because he is abundantly attested in early sources. If you want to go where the evidence goes, I think that atheists have done themselves a disservice by jumping on the bandwagon of mythicism, because frankly, it makes you look foolish to the outside world. If that's what you're going to believe, you just look foolish. So I think for most people, the choice for or against Jesus is not a matter of secular history. It's not a matter of fact. It becomes much more personal. It really does become an issue of what do I want to believe? So was he a liar? Was he a lunatic? Was he really the son of God? That is the most important question you will ever answer. Jesus claimed that he was Lord. But claims really aren't that impressive. You can claim to be a lot of things, but but most of us would want to see the proof. And so in the next few moments, we're going to look not just at the claims of Christ, but at the credentials of Christ. Because Jesus validated his claim to be the Son of God, first of all, because he fulfilled 300 ancient prophecies. Some 300 prophecies he fulfilled in Scripture. And as we've seen, these scriptures were written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. 
Peter Stoner, a scientist who specializes in mathematical probability, he said the probability of Jesus fulfilling just eight of the 300 prophecies is one times 10 to the 17th power. And so it's only by way of supernatural explanation that you could say that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies. By fulfilling all of the prophecies without exception, he shows himself to be the Son of God, who he claimed to be. That's an incredible credential. Secondly, he validated his claim by performing miracles. In John 10, 37, Jesus said to the people, do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. I guess we can't blame people from believing when they see miracles. Anybody could claim to be a son or daughter of God, but when you see supernatural miracles, then those claims are backed up. And what's incredible about the miracles of Jesus is they weren't done in some dark room. They, they weren't done in the quiet with, with only family and friends around. There, there were no tricks done with cameras. No, he performed miracles in broad daylight. He did it with cynics and skeptics alike. As a matter of fact, you can look at, at books of ancient history and you will find people who are even opponents of Jesus. Some of the Jewish writings admit that Jesus performed the miraculous. So his ability to do the miraculous further validates the claim of who he was. But probably the most spectacular demonstration of his deity is his resurrection from the dead. Jesus fulfilled his own prediction of coming back to life when he arose three days after he died. And that wasn't something that just his disciples saw. This was something that was witnessed, 1 Corinthians tells us, by more than 500 people. And we're going to talk about this in a little bit. But was Jesus the Son of God? Was he a liar? Was he a lunatic? Was he a legend? Or was he Lord? Question number two, why did Jesus have to die? That's an important question. Why did he have to endure such incredible pain? Was it necessary for him to endure such a horrific death? We know that in the ancient world, the Romans who killed Jesus had a number of ways to carry out an execution. They knew how to execute people cheaply. They executed some people by fire. Some people were stoned. Others were executed by the stroke of a sword. Some people, they gave hemlock to drink and poisoned them. So why crucifixion? It required four soldiers and a centurion to oversee. It was one of the most costly ways of executing someone. Well, they would do it when they wanted to shed the most blood. It was done to maximize the pain. And they used it as a way to publicly humiliate the person being punished. Before a criminal was crucified, it would be common for them to be beaten the way that Jesus was. For the scourging, they would, they would take the victim's hands and they would tie them together up high or down low and they would, they would stretch the muscles of the back tightly as possible. Oftentimes, people make the mistake of thinking that Jesus was whipped just 39 times. That was a Jewish law. But remember, Jesus was being scourged by the Romans and the Romans had no such law. In fact, for them, they were experts at beating someone to the edge of death. 
The objectives of the soldiers was not to lash out quickly and inflict welts. Instead, the idea was is they would, they would rake the person's back, literally shredding the muscles in the backs, the buttocks, and the legs. A third century historian by the name of Eusebius describes the flogging. He says, the sufferer's veins were laid bare and the very muscles and intestines of the victim were open to exposure. And historians tell us that as many of, as six out of 10 men would die from this beating alone. Well, after being beaten beyond recognition, the Roman soldiers would have placed what's called the patibulum of the cross on the back of Jesus. The patibulum is the horizontal beam of the cross. It would have weighed around 125 pounds. And it likely would have laid upon exposed vertebrae and nerves. It's no wonder that Jesus would have had so much trouble carrying his cross down the narrow roads of the Via della Rosa. The Via della Rosa or the way of Calvary or, or the road to the cross, it was not the shortest path. In fact, it was the path that went through the heart of the city. It was the most crowded route. The idea was people would see what was happening and they would gather around and they would follow this person as they were getting ready to be crucified. And they would berate them and, and taunt them and humiliate the man being crucified. And when they got to Golgotha, which simply means the place of the skull, they take the horizontal beam and they attach it to the vertical beam and they would stretch out the arms of Jesus and they would nail his hands to the tree. Now, maybe you've heard people explain before that the hands couldn't hold the full weight of the body. That's actually not true. If you do it just right, you can. Uh, there's an area between your, your thumb and your fingers and your hand, it's called the thenar furrow. And if you put a nail in at about a 30 degree angle, the human hand can hold about 88 pounds. So you multiply that by two and it's theoretically possible that 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 would hold the weight of Jesus. But that was probably not the case because those who were crucified would usually go into convulsions and that just wouldn't hold. What's more likely is that the nail went through the, the complex of wrist bones right underneath his hands. You know, there, there's two bones there, the, the radius and the ulna. And you can put a nail between these bones and you can hold the weight of the entire human body on one hand. So that's likely where the nail went. Besides, it would have been more painful. There's a major nerve that runs through here called the media nerve. And if that nerve gets severed, it causes agonizing pain to shoot up through the back, and it causes the hand to cramp up kind of like a, a bird claw. Next, the soldiers would have nailed the feet of Jesus to the cross. But here's the question. What causes someone to die when they're executed this way? Some think that he died by asphyxiation, that the person literally suffocates. This idea was started by a French physician named Pierre Barbet. In World War II, he noticed that soldiers who were hung by their arms, they died and suffocated fairly rapidly. And the idea is when someone is crucified, their, their muscles are drawn so tight that their lungs can't expand and contract. And so in order to breathe, they have to, they have to pull themselves up and then let themselves down. And they keep doing that over and over again. 
And if you do that for very long, your strength gives out and eventually you suffocate. I've heard a number of people explain that this is how Jesus died, that that he just suffocated. But that's not the case. The average person was on the cross for 72 hours. Uh, One man lasted for nine days. So most victims of crucifixion stayed out there much longer than they would have if they died by asphyxiation. In fact, they stayed out there so long that, that oftentimes victims of crucifixion would attract scavengers and animals would come out at night. And I don't want to paint too graphic of a picture, but birds would come out and they were attracted to the moisture in the eyes. It was just a horrible, horrible death. Now, Jesus didn't go through that because he was only on the cross for six hours. He didn't die of suffocation. Another reason we know Jesus didn't die of suffocation is the last thing he he said when he died was, it is finished. And Matthew records that he shouted that. Now, you don't shout something if you're suffocating. So how did Jesus die? Well, do you remember when Jesus was on the cross, there was a soldier who went up to him with a spear and put the spear through his ribcage. And John tells us that when the soldier pulled the spear out, that what happened was that blood and water poured forth. Well, you might be aware that once a person dies, they really no longer bleed. Blood can still come out, but the heart is not pumping blood through the body. Once your heart stops pumping, the the blood that comes out is more of what would just fall out. There really isn't much in this area unless you go through the pericardial region. And a cardiologist would read this text and, and they would tell you the way that Jesus died. Because it was both blood and water, the blood which was pumping through his body was so heavy, it forced it was forced in the pericardial sac. And it has this liquid around it to protect it but it exploded. And so when the spear went into his side, both blood and water poured out from the the pericardial sac and, and, and blood and water came out. His heart literally exploded. And so we read this description of the death of Jesus and it's just horrible. It's extremely uncomfortable. And so the question we have to wrestle with is, if Jesus was really the Son of God, then why would he die such a horrible death? Certainly God could have done things a different way, right? Why would God allow his Son to go through so much suffering, something as horrible as what we just described? So why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't God just forgive our sins, overlook our offenses, turn his head away, and just pretend that everything was okay? Well, the Bible tells us that God is completely just. He just can't pretend that everything's okay. He can't just pretend that that we never sinned. Our sin, remember Romans says, has to be paid for. Romans Romans says that that the, the wages of sin is death. And so Jesus came to earth, and he died. And his blood and his dying a horrible death was the penalty for our sins. The Bible uses the word justified to describe what took place. 
When Jesus died, we became justified. And justification is a legal term that simply means to declare not guilty. It means to be acquitted of all charges. Jesus died so that a just God could declare guilty people guiltless. Justification is more than just being forgiven. It means that there is no longer no case against you. All the charges have been dropped. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Scripture says that on the cross, he who knew no sin, never experienced any guilt, never had a moment of shame, never experienced the pain of regret, that he who knew no sin became sin for our sake. So you know that thing in your life that you've always regretted? That thing that's caused you shame and guilt? Jesus experienced that on the cross. For every sin that's ever been committed by every person, Jesus died. He had to. There was no other way for us to be made right with God. Was Jesus really the Son of God? Why did he die? Last question, did Jesus really come back to life? I mean, be honest, this one's hard to buy. It's so hard to believe that one of the disciples of Jesus, one of his closest followers, Thomas, just couldn't accept it to be true. Listen to what Thomas said when he heard that Jesus raised from the dead. He said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my hands in his side, I won't believe it. Now, we can understand why he would be so skeptical. We just heard how Jesus died. Thomas would have been aware of those things. He knew Jesus had died. Surely he couldn't have risen from the dead after experiencing such a horrible death. And every Easter, maybe you've heard the story that Jesus died and three days later he came back to life. And it's cynical to become about something like that. It becomes pretty far-fetched. I mean, isn't it just a fable that followers of Jesus came up with to kind of enhance his mystique? It's an important question. Because the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of the Christian faith. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So belief in a literal resurrection is essential for salvation. It's essential for eternal life. You could believe everything else the Bible says, but if you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, you're not a Christian. Believing in his resurrection is part of the gift of salvation. So imagine if someone famous died today and everybody knew who he was. And some of his friends went around and they started telling people that, that this guy rose from the dead. Well, that would be ridiculous to believe unless you saw it or a large number of people had witnessed it with their own eyes. And most skeptics have had to come up with some creative explanations to the resurrection of Jesus because there were so many eyewitnesses in the historical account that he was seen after he was crucified. And so they've come up with some different theories. One theory is that Jesus never actually died. 
This is a common teaching. It's known as the swoon theory. Confusion on whether or not someone has died is unusual, but it's not unheard of. Uh, There was a letter that came from Health and Human Services to a resident in Greenville County, South Carolina, and this is what the letter said. Your food stamps will stop effective March 2002 because we received notice that you passed away. May God bless you. You may reapply if your circumstances change. Well, the events surrounding the burial of Jesus Christ proved that he really did die. For example, when Joseph of Arimathea came to get the body of Jesus for burial, we're told that Pilate double-checked to make sure that Jesus was really dead. So the spear that was thrust into his side and the combination of blood and water coming forth from his heart proved Jesus really did die. And after that, Jesus was wrapped in probably 75 pounds of linens and spices. So even if he had survived that, he would have been suffocated by the burial. I mean, honestly, if Jesus were were to somehow have lived through all of it, that probably would have been even more miraculous than the resurrection itself. There was a woman who wrote to J. Vernon McGee, and this is what she said. Our preacher says that on Easter, Jesus swooned on the cross and that his disciples nursed him back to health. What do you think? Listen to what J. Vernon McGee writes. Dear sister, beat your preacher with a leather whip covered with sharp bones and glass. Nail him to a cross and hang him in the sun for six hours. Run a spear through his heart, embalm him in a tomb for three days, and see what happens. Well, other critics have questioned the resurrection by saying that the disciples went to the wrong tomb. But the burial of Christ refutes this wrong tomb theory. You see, this idea would be easier to believe, much more compelling, if Jesus had been buried in a public cemetery. I mean, it could be confusing. There's so many tombs. Which one was his? But remember, Jesus wasn't buried in a public cemetery. He was buried in a a private tomb, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. There was no other tomb with which to confuse it. Besides, as we'll see in a moment, the tomb was sealed off and there was a Roman guard standing in front of it. Uh, There were other people, including most Orthodox Jews, who don't deny that Jesus died, but they deny the resurrection, saying that the body of Jesus was stolen. This is just known as the stolen body theory. This was the original theory that was concocted by the Jewish leaders. But the details surrounding Jesus' burial create some serious problems with this theory. For example, in Matthew chapter 27, the Pharisees went to Pilate because they were afraid that the body of Jesus would be stolen. And what's ironic is the disciples of Jesus had no such thoughts. In fact, they ran off into hiding. The reality of the resurrection was just not something that they were thinking about. I'm not sure if they thought it was going to be mystical or figurative, but they sure were not expecting it when Jesus rose from the dead. But in Matthew 27, verses 65 and 66, Pilate ordered, he said, take a guard. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Which simply means that they probably put some wax on the stone, and then they put some wax on the outside of the wall of the tomb, and they put the two together. And then they would have run a a string down the wax, So if anybody would have moved the stone, they would have known about it because the string would have been broken. And then 
that wax would have been sealed with a stamp from the Roman governor. So people would know it's against the law, that there'd be a severe penalty if there were any tampering. So they did all of this to make sure that no one would take the body. It was sealed off, and there were soldiers standing in front of it. Was Jesus really the Son of God? Why did he die? Did Jesus really come back to life? These questions are foundational to your faith. What you do with Jesus is the most important decision you'll ever make. I want to close by reading what James Allen Francis writes about the life of Christ and his influence. Maybe put everything down. Maybe close your eyes and listen to these words. This is entitled, One Solitary Life. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never lived in a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed tomb through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race. I am well within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. God, thank you that you sent Jesus to this earth to die for us. God, thank you for the authority of Scripture. Thank you for the testimony of history. That we can have good, solid answers to some of the biggest questions we have in our faith. God, we can know that Jesus is the Son of God that he is our Lord and he is our Savior. We know that Jesus lived on this earth. He lived a perfect life, that he died on a cross. Three days later, he rose from the dead. He ascended to go to the Father where he sits at your right hand. And God, we know this. It is the foundation of our faith. Thank you for the solid rock of Jesus Christ. God, I pray for, for those who have questions about Jesus, maybe some of the questions that we talked about today. God, if there's anybody here who now can say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, 
that he's my Lord and Savior, God, I pray that they would make that decision today. That they would see their life change for all eternity. God, there's a lot of important questions in life. But the most important question any one of us will ever answer is, who is Jesus? Who do we say that Jesus is? And if there's anybody here, anybody in this room, anybody who's joining us online, who's never accepted Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of their life, God, I I give them the opportunity today to come and accept the free gift of salvation found in Jesus. God, if there's anybody here whose faith is floundering, God, I pray that they would be bolstered today. Their faith would be strengthened because they know who Jesus is and they know what Jesus has done for them. Thank you for what you've done for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.